Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and vile body at Nicolt Rave, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and lady who ran off with Dream's Sand Helm and Ruby, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sleep of the Just, episode one from Netflix's The Sandman, season one. Sleep of the Just aired on August 5th, 2022, and was written by Neil Gaiman, David S. Goyer, and Alan Heinberg, and directed by Mike Barker. You are the dreaming. The dreaming is you. Time to wake up. In Sleep of the Just, we begin in 1916 with the transaction. The senior curator of the Royal Museum, grieving the recent loss of his son in World War I, has agreed to sell the Magdalene Grimoire to Roderick Burgess, an aristocratic British occultist who wants to capture death to bring his own dead soldier son back to life. As Roderick's younger and less favored son, Alex, reassures the frightened curator, we follow an observing raven, Jessamy, out of the room and into the realm of the dreaming. We pass through the massive gates of horn and ivory and sail over a ship that evokes piratic dreams before arriving at a grand palace that combines Gothic and Moorish elements. In voiceover, Dream tells us that when the waking world leaves you wanting and weary, sleep brings you here to find freedom and adventure and to face your fears and fantasies. We then meet the lean, pale, exquisitely serious Dream and learn that he intends to hunt down a rogue nightmare, the Corinthian. Dream's servant and confidant, the dapper Lucien, is worried about this mission, and with good reason. In Berlin, Dream, in his insect-like helm and robes, confronts the suavely sinister Corinthian and begins to unmake him. But the chanting of Roderick Burgess's acolytes breaks in, and we see the Sandman pulled away and imprisoned in a glass globe. Roderick does not know whom he has caught until the Corinthian shows up, a good-looking nightmare and a straw boater, and informs Roderick that he has captured Dream of the Endless. Not a god, more than a god. Even though Dream remains silent and uncooperative, the Corinthian tells Roderick that his pouch of sand, helm, and ruby can be used to extend life and manipulate others. The one warning? Do not let anyone fall asleep in Dream's presence. Meanwhile, all over the world, people either cannot sleep or cannot wake. A young girl named Unity is one of the latter. Back at Roderick's grand home, the Twenties see the Magus, as he prefers to be called, throwing wild occult parties while the meek Alex continues to try in vain to win his father's favor. In a final desperate bid for paternal approval, Alex shoots Jessamy, the black and white raven, but only succeeds in earning Dream's eternal hatred. The saucy flapper Ethel Cripps flatters Alex and becomes his father's mistress. When she becomes pregnant and Roderick tells her to abort, she takes off with the Sandman's vestments of power. We see her with her baby, John D., who will be raised in the shadow of the Sandman's helm. Back at the manor, as Roderick berates his son in front of the silently observing dream, Alex finally explodes in rage, accidentally knocking his father into the glass globe and killing him. But Alex, newly in love with the hunky gardener, won't release Dream unless he has a promise that Dream will not harm him or his love. Dream remains silent, and Alex keeps him prisoner year after year as he ages and Dream does not. Now, a very old man, 
Alex visits one last time, with Paul pushing him in a wheelchair. The wheelchair rubs out part of the protective pentagram, however, giving Dream his long-awaited chance. When one of the guards falls asleep, the Sandman enters his dream of a Mallorcan beach and grabs a handful of sand, in his hands, more powerful than the gun the guard fires at the glass globe. Free at last, the King of Dreams confronts Alex, first as a cat, and then as himself, crow-like in a black robe, his hair a perfect 80s rock-spiked tousle, his eyes like two burning stars. As Alex becomes his younger self, first a teenager, then a child again, Dream curses him with a century of nightmares. Then the weary monarch in exile returns home, where he is greeted by a joyful Lucienne, and the daunting news that his kingdom is in ruins. Worse still, many of his subjects have assumed that he, like another of his family, had abandoned his duties. And they, like the Corinthian, have gone off to make their own way in our waking world. Alisa, oh my God. Okay, so some years ago, uh, you reached out to me and you were like, hey, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, Alisa, do I want to work with you? Absolutely. Knew nothing about Sandman, knew nothing about any of it, had not read the comics. Um, and in that time, we've covered the first few volumes. Um, I've absolutely gotten so incredibly into it, really enjoy it. And finally, here we are at the reason why we started this whole thing in the first place, the TV show. It's here. Um, so give me your your first response to the episode, The Sleep of the now, all of the episodes have been released by Netflix at the time that anybody is listening to this recording uh, because they are dropping all of them on August 5th. And that's when we're releasing our first episode, although we will be going week to week because we're not, you know, masochists. Um, <laughs> but here we are. We're going to try to talk in each of our episodes mostly just about the episode that we're covering. So with Sleep of the Just, what's your overall response? Well, first of all, I feel like we have been encased in a glass globe for a century or so. Uh, between, you know, when, when we first uh, started talking about this, it was pre-pandemic. So uh, there's, it was prescient in so many ways. Yeah. I love the look and the feel of this. It has sweep, it has scope, it has heft. Um, all the changes from the comic make a lot of sense to me. You know, they make Dream more proactive as a protagonist. And they give the Corinthian and Alex more agency as antagonists. It's a more accessible form of the storytelling, and it lays things out really clearly and logically uh, with clear stakes. And that said, there's a really rich brocading of characters here, as what we know about Roderick and Alex is embellished and deepened. For me, you know, I'm also grappling with that strange feeling of... Uh, you know, when you go to a country or to a place that you went in your 20s and you haven't been back and now you're in your 50s, you just <laughs> you're sort of, oh, look at the things that have changed. And yet that is the same. So it's it's having some of that element for me as well. Oh, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, for me, it's all a new, fresh experience. Uh, but even going from the experience of having read the comics into um, you know, and having read the comics so closely the way that we've been doing for, you know, the purposes of this podcast and then going into the TV show, it really is kind of like the familiar mixed with all of this newness, which is really fun. Um, and for anybody listening, just to let you know, Elisa has a new little puppy. 
who is in the background a little bit. You might hear a little bit of that. So we will we will try to minimize that as much as possible. But also, puppy's got a puppy. You I'm know? So, so sorry. This is just kind of how it is. She's she's right now. She's gnawing on various things. And uh, do you need to go take care of it? No. So far, she's just gnawing on things I don't care about that much. Okay. If she, right. if she well, gets going, care, just. If she if she gets going on the Sandman's helm, I'll have to intervene. Right. <laughs> well, she is the official mascot. That is Gilda, the official mascot of uh, Endless Podcast, and you may hear her in the background also having her opinions about Sandman. Um, for me, this episode is a really rocking start. Um, the thing is, you know, a lot of the the stories that happen, you know, within Sandman in the comics and and what we're seeing in the TV show, um, there's a lot of things that feel like their short stories aren't entirely about Dream. I mean, here he is; he's just sitting there. Although I would definitely not call him passive um, for most of the episode. It's just that his activity is knowing that he will outlast any of these assholes, right? You know, um, it seems like a horror story about what weakness does to a human soul, like Roderick Burgess's greed, Alex Burgess's cowardice define their lives, and they are just as much imprisoned by those weaknesses as Dream is in his cage, which I think is a really neat reflection. Um, but, and this is something that I'm going to talk about more in depth as we move further through the series, when you've got a character who basically is the manifestation of meaning through story, then all the stories are kind of about him. They all reflect on him. And so his story is still moving in the background, even in the scenes where he's not present, even in the scenes where he's just sitting there glaring, you know, in the middle of a glass box. Um and the thing is, is that we also have dreams, weaknesses, pride and stubbornness that create his cage and extend the life of his cage. Because at a certain point, if he was willing to forgive Alex, he would have gotten out and he refused. Um, so I find that really interesting, especially and again, we're going to limit spoilers how the story moves from here. Um, all right. So I, I think the first thing that, you know, comes to mind after having watched this is Oh my God, it's beautiful. It really is. It's beautiful. It looks like a movie. It looks, you know, there there is um, one of my favorite miniseries, which I, has, I think, a cult following, is The mm -hmm. Tenth Kingdom. And it was made at this moment in 2000, right before green screen replaced locations. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's beautiful. It has the feeling of a lot of money and care. And locations were used, mm -hmm. actual locations. And that's what I'm getting from this. This this feels real. I also love the fact that enough time has passed that they gave Dream his 80s perfectly tousled rocker <laughs> hair, spiky rocker <laughs> hair. Because, you know, yeah. if it had been done in the 90s, I think they mm -hmm. would have given him the very short crew cut. I think they it would have, you know, you have to wait long enough for something that has gone mm -hmm. out of fashion to be so out that yes. it's ready. I think this is going to cause a trend. I think that oh, they, it's it. going to make the spiky, indie, moody rocker hair come back in again. I also want to say that the camera angles, which I think about a lot as a former comic book editor. Yeah, sure. You know, there is a real trick in all of those scenes where he's in a glass globe. He's just sitting in a glass globe. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sure as an actor, that's challenging. <laughs> he, you know, first of all, Sturridge is great with his body and with his face. Yeah. But the camera person is also great at finding angles that show both that he's imprisoned, but that he is not subjugated, that he does not mm -hmm. feel lesser than this person who's literally talking down to him. 
Exactly. Um, yeah, I think that the visuals in this are so incredible. And yeah, the framing, you know, what is in the shot, how the shot is framed, how the shot is composed. That is such an incredible art form that often goes like some of the most incredible art forms, especially in like visual media. Um, if, if people don't notice it because because your art is so good that it has melded with the story and they are in the story. Um, I think that's what happened in the comic book. And I think that's what I see happening here in the TV show as well. I think that the visuals are just amazing. That opening sequence where we have Bill Patterson falling asleep in the carriage and then moving, you know, from the real world into, you know, the quote unquote real world, as they refer to it in the thing, into the dreaming and um, and how everything is is built and how beautiful and metaphorical it is. You know, um, it's just so incredible. I love the pumpkin headed guy like in the comics. We still have I think his name is Merv. Right. Yes. As you've told me. Right. Um, still haven't dealt with him much um, in, in what I've read so far in the comics, but just seeing him there, I was like, oh, my God, I love that guy. I don't know that guy. I know nothing about him. There's something about the pumpkin head that just I find absolutely adorable. Um, we've got the design of Dream's glass cage, which I think is absolutely beautiful and haunting and terrifying and all of these things, you know. Um, I love Jessamy as this white-necked raven. Um, it makes her distinguishable from other ravens we may perhaps see later. Uh, it's a really, really nice touch. Um, and the dreaming, you know, it's so beautiful, so like incredibly powerful in its visuals in the beginning. And then when we come back and it's in total decay, it is no less powerful. Um, the visuals in this, I think, have just been absolutely tremendous. I am blown away by all of it. I think it's just incredible. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about when we get into, as we move into talking about like the story here, um, is adaptive choices. This is not the first podcast I've done on adaptation of beloved printed material. Um, and one of the things that that ended up being a complaint really often on that other project I worked on um, was that it's not the same. Right. You know, it's it, we're, we're certain things have changed. They've done these things. We don't like these changes, yada, yada, yada. My feeling on that is always that, like, you have, you know, two different forms um, and at, each form has its strength. And so you mold the, the story to fit the form. And that's what makes adaptation so incredibly fun is seeing it from that that different perspective. Um, and so just for, you know, a little bit of educational story is a recounted event or series of events. Narrative is the meaning evoked by the the way in which a story is recounted and form is the medium through which the storyteller works right um so with every form having its strength like form is the tv show or it is the comic book or it is the novel or it is the you know whatever it is that the that the storyteller is working with um and they all have their strengths but when you adapt from one to another and you take the strengths of of one um and then find a way to express those through the strengths of the other it means that certain things are going to change change. Certain things are going to be different. Um, and I think that that's the fun of an adaptation. So here's the thing for any fans who are upset by any of the adaptive choices that were made here, no one is ever going to take the comics away from you. They still exist. They still exist in that form. The story exists in that form. Um, so any of these changes that you might not like as much because it's different from the source material, I just ask you to take a minute and just really appreciate how those changes work and how they they still manage to express the heart and soul 
of that story, you know, like living to the spirit of the law rather than the letter. Um, so I just wanted to go ahead and throw that out there as that was a complaint that I heard a lot um, in the other project that I worked on. And I think that, that you know, for people who found it difficult to enjoy the new version because it didn't match exactly the old version, it really is an opportunity to love it in a different way, I think. I agree. And and at the same time, perhaps I am one of those people who can also speak <laughs> a little bit for, oh, wait, that's not the way I lived with it for so long. It's If mm -hmm. you've ever had the experience of going and visiting a home that you lived in yeah. for formative years, and then somebody mm -hmm. else lives there, or a dorm right. room, you know, and there's this weirdness of, you moved the table over <laughs> there? What do you mean you redid the kitchen? That was my color. And now you've taken my green and replaced it with. So there, there is an element of, of that. So as you were talking about adaptation, I was thinking there's two elements to adaptation here. One is that, yes, it's an adaptation from a comic to the screen. The other is the way these stories were designed to be consumed. So in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, comics were serialized storytelling like Dickens. You, mm -hmm. you had to grab the reader, but the reader knew, I'm going to get a fix once a month. And mm -hmm. that mindset, it, it wasn't even the mindset that TV viewers used to have of, I'm going to get a fix once a week. You mm -hmm. had to have a lot of patience with a story playing itself out over a year. A storyline could take a year. And mm -hmm. that was a different way of thinking about story. Whereas now, uh, you know, I imagine that on August 5th, people are going to binge through all 10 episodes yeah. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and not watch one and then wait a week or a month. And... <laughs> That means that it's 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 not just the 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 way that this is being presented, but the way in which it's being experienced is different, and all the storytellers yes. know that. So I think that you know this is much more accessible. It's also in competition with a lot more stuff. I think that there mm -hmm. was a different expectation. This is a larger investment of resources than the Sandman comic was in its day. And so you've got to reach the audience. And, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. because of that, the way in which this story is unspooled right away is a lot more accessible in that I get answers to things. I mean, I'm trying to imagine myself as a new viewer. There are answers to questions that you haven't even fully formed yet. Whereas mm -hmm. I, I went back and I reread the first issue and looked at the pacing and when stuff is revealed. You know, who are these people? What are they doing? What the heck's a grimoire? Um, <laughs> you know, what, 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 what is Magus? So all of these things are allowed to sit uh, a little mm -hmm. bit more in, in mystery. And right. that that is the change that um, I, I see most clearly, you know, mm -hmm. I, I guess for someone else, it may be the shocking fact that Jessamy now has a band of white. 
Yeah, the way in which a reader engages, and when I say reader, I mean like anybody who engages with a story is reading that story. Um, so the way that uh, that any particular property engages with its reader is part of that whole experience. Like when these things were coming out once a month, somebody might read the Sandman comic when it came out, but they also might read it again two or three times before the next one came out the following month, which meant that they would absorb more, that there was more... Uh, uh, going on for me, like as soon as I got access to this, I binged the whole thing, like the whole thing could not stop. I was so entranced by the whole thing, was fascinated by the adaptive choices, which I really overall overwhelmingly loved. Um, and uh, and so it was just such a different experience. And now I'm going back as we're, you know, going and I'm watching it again, you know, like probably two more times to make my notes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it is such a different experience, you know, going through all of that. And I think that it makes um, in some some ways the imprint of a story a little more temporary you know like I binged when a Stranger Things came out every season I binged all of it immediately and then by the next year I have forgotten it I'm like what happened who was this person I remember vaguely they were in a mall you know like that kind of thing um and so the binging I think like requires the movements to be bigger for things to grab attention um in a way that even you know month to month in a comic or even week to week in a tv show might not because it's people who are really into it are going to engage with that material again before the next episode is out so binging changes the ways in which people interact with uh with storytelling and I think that that changes the way in which we need to tell those stories. So it's not just that this is a TV show, but also that this is a bingeable TV show in that it's all coming out on one day. Um, I think it's a fascinating model, and I still don't entirely understand all of the effects on the ways in which these stories are read. I just know personally, you know, anecdotally how my experience um, kind of shakes out there. Uh, but I'm really, really looking forward to hearing from listeners, you know, of Endless. Like, are you watching it all at once? Are you savoring one episode and then taking some time to sit with it and then going into the next one? Like, how are people choosing to do it? Because they can watch it once a week if they want. They can make it, you know, something that doles out, you know, but they have to have the will to do that themselves, which I, of course, did not have and had no interest in that kind of willpower uh, for this experience. All right, so let's get talking about this episode, about this adaptation, um, and some of the changes that we're seeing. Let's talk a little bit about Alex. Oh, fantastic. I Well, first of all, I really love the... the I forgot to glance at the, the child actor who plays young mm -hmm. Alex, but he seems wonderful to me. And... In the comic, I notice that Roderick reaches out and grabs Dream's pouch and ruby. And here he asks Alex to do it, you know, either because he can't or he won't. He'd rather risk his, his you know, the, the less wanted younger son than his own, mm -hmm. his own safety. And I think mm -hmm. it's that. I also looked back. I don't see a mention of a Randall of this older son, yeah, which mm -hmm. gives a more specific goal. You know, why, I mean, obviously a lot of people would want to capture death and therefore perhaps not have to die. Mm -hmm. But if somebody has lost a son in World War I, that is a particular and poignant reason, uh, which makes him uh, more sympathetic until you realize he's just being an utter shit to his yes. actual young <laughs> living son. And um, 
and will kind of resonate interestingly with Cain and Abel in that original story of, you know, yeah. sibling rivalry. In the show, Alex greets Dr. John Hathaway, the curator, and he says, Father likes to be called Magus. It means sorcerer. But in the comic, it's a little different. I think that they're doing the actual ceremony and Alex says, uh, yes, father. And the father replies, father. And in very small font, Alex says, Magus. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little telling interplay. I don't think you need that in the same way here. You're getting more of their relationship. Um mm-hmm you know, made clear to you that he is not the favored son. Mm-hmm. However, you know, th- again, there, there is something interesting about the um, the implicit relationship in that one. There's another mm-hmm. interesting change. In the comic, Paul, the uh, Alex's lover, partner, he notices that the wheelchair breaks the pentagram in the, in the show, not in the comic. And mm-hmm. so there's this moment that, shows that he's kind of aware he may have given dream yeah. and and out and you know and that is an interesting choice i always think that the things we do either subconsciously or consciously are more interesting than pure coincidence or accident mm-hmm. uh, absolutely but there is one thing missing from the not missing but thing i loved in the comic uh mm-hmm. I think Alex says something like, I, I have to go to work. I have work to do. And, you know, Paul says, of course you do. And Alex says, you I don't like it when you humor me. And I love that, mm-hmm. that there was this nice hint of, of their relationship in there. But, you know, so I go back and forth thinking, ooh, I really like this in this form. But I really, you know, mm-hmm. I'm... Uh, Times it, it is like eating coconut and passion fruit ice cream and trying to decide which you really feel like as you make your way through both pints. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, it's always there. The comic book still exists. So that's always there. That story is is expressed that way. But again, like, there is an efficiency required of comic books that you don't necessarily, you know, need to live to in a television show. You have a little more room to breathe. You have a little more room to expand, I think, on some things. Um, when you think about like the fact that in 24 or 30 pages, whatever a standard issue is um, of comic books, um, that this much story was able to be expressed in that space. That is not a lot of space. Like the efficiency of comic books to me still feels like magic. I still don't understand how they get that much story into that little space and how that efficiency of, of storytelling even ever happens to me. I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, but having that space to expand. And one of the things that I absolutely love is that here we have John Hathaway, right? Who is motivated by his son and he is feeling that loss and he is feeling this conflict. Then we have Roderick Burgess who is like, yes, well, I lost, you know, my favorite son and now I'm left with this idiot, you know? Um, and so he's kind of being a jerk, but when it comes right down to it though, What he asks for when he goes to dream, he doesn't ask like Randall coming back is just kind of like, you know, part of it, but he wants immortality. He wants power. He wants all of these things from, uh, from dream. He wants to demand, you know? Um, and so it's, I find that such an interesting touch in that this, this little bit of humanity was put in to that character, that opportunity for him to be motivated by grief and loss and something human. When in fact, 
even with that loss, which was very real, he's still out for his own buck. He's still out there. He wants his immortality more than he wants Randall back, you know? Um, And I think that that, like having that opportunity for that humanity and yet not pursuing it, showing that even with that, this guy is still, it almost makes him worse, you know? Like it makes him like even worse. And I kind of love what that opportunity, what that little bit of shading to that character does. And it's it's interesting because both in the comic and in the show, you've got two antagonists really in yeah. this episode, mm-hmm. in this, you know, you've got Roderick and you've got Alex. And mm-hmm. in both, Alex is infinitely the more interesting antagonist because yes. we get to see, we grow up with him we get to see mm-hmm. what made him who he is and of course yeah. we witness the the checkered birth of you know a future antagonist as well yes oh absolutely which is so much fun um but yeah like you know with alex it's just his cowardice you know like they both both of the burgesses have incredible weakness but alex is just cowardice it's just that he won't take the risk that dream might hurt him if he lets him out but he knows it's wrong he knows it's wrong and he's i would let you out if my father would let me and then when his father dies his own cowardice steps in and i think that that is a pretty accurate you know, drawing of like humans when they're in a situation where they have to take a risk in order to help somebody else, a lot of times they won't do it. I I totally agree that it's cowardice, but I think there's another element in there, which Mm -hmm. is wanting to please his father. It was funny with my my puppy is an Icelandic sheepdog. And at one point (laughs) she was trying to choose between following this other Icelandic sheepdog and me mm-hmm. and um, and my friend said, ah, that's the call of the Viking wild. And I said, or it could just be the classic female desire to please everyone. And, right. and, and, and my friend said to me, oh, God, that's you projecting again. But <laughs> but I think that with Alex, there is mm-hmm. not not in his case, not the classic female, but that that classic trap that many of us uh male female and and it's, otherwise it's fall response. into y- yeah y- people pleasing is a trauma response and here's this kid that's been emotionally abused at least and we see some sense of physical abuse as well throughout his entire lifetime that's going to be part of his character absolutely and even after his father is gone he's still contending as so many of us do with the internalized mm-hmm. father there's that voice of of the guard saying you know what would your father say and that <laughs> that is another element that's, you know, he's been that's the element of him that's a little tragic because, you know, had he been raised by a decent father, not uh, hosting occult uh, orgies at his house and and, and uh, abusing his son, he, he could have turned out differently. Mm-hmm. He definitely could have. I, I think that, yes, while his father was alive, not freeing a dream is absolutely understandable. He was a kid. He was abused. All of that. As soon as his father is dead and he has the power and he doesn't do it, I think that's when the cowardice uh, takes over as the particular weakness that draws him down into villainy. Yes. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's it's Morpheus also has some culpability there because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Paul is a good influence. I mean, they're both reading Evil yeah. and Wah. They've got some self-awareness and he just mm-hmm. wants a little uh, diplomatic immunity before he releases yeah, right. James. And James <laughs> is just, you know, I, I, once I've been wronged, I do not forgive, which will obviously take us yes. into some other storylines. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's it's um it's really really good. I love that moment where Alex is like, "Just promise me you won't hurt us, and I will let you go." And Dream will not say anything. Dream knowing that people are in danger. Yeah, right. Yeah, that like there's because he is not there to manage the dreaming that there are bad things certainly happening. He may not be aware of specifically what those bad things are, but he knows that there is a risk to humanity at large, and he will not say, "I will not harm you." Not even I forgive you. Just I will not harm you. Like he will not do it, and that keeps him in there for like another eighty years. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we've all done that. We've all sometimes, you know, yes. had, had, you know, had Cut off our nose to spite our face. Yes, yes. Had we just been a little more able to be resilient or to let go, mm-hmm. perhaps we wouldn't have had to spend the, those extra decades in the glass yeah. globe. Uh, I know I speak for myself. That's a wonderful metaphor. And I will always now refer to that phenomenon as the glass globe. Absolutely. <laughs> Stuck in a globe and you can't get out of it. Can we talk right. a little about Morpheus and Tom Sturridge oh, and physicality? Um, I've, I've talked about the hair. Um, yes. I saw there was an article about why he is um, Caucasian and not bone white. He's simply very, mm-hmm. very pale. But I didn't read it. So I don't know. Uh, about that choice. But what struck me is there are moments where it's directly panel transfers. You know, you see the image Mm -hmm. of how the cloak is billowed out and the helm, which is beautifully done. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not, I'm I'm hoping they don't do some really terrible plastic knockoff for Halloween because the the helm (laughs) as it is right now is is glorious, feels very um, insect-like and and, uh, Mm -hmm. what's it called? Chitin, kitten, C H I T I N. Yeah. Chitin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chitin, I think. Chitin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's, it's that. And chitinous. Um, and then when he's naked and lying there, and I was thinking, gosh, you know, he looks so pale and slender and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. assuming somewhere in there just as, uh, oh gosh, what's that actor's name uh, who played the blonde vampire? Uh, uh, I'm having a moment. The blonde vet. No, no. Uh, the- uh, okay, I was going to say that's Spike. That's James Marsters. I absolutely know who that of is. Of course, I love James. <laughs> I named a cat after him. But no, I mean right, yeah. uh, the other one from Sookie Stackhouse, uh, True Blood. Oh, yes, yes. No, I know. I know who you're talking. So about, when he yes. played mm-hmm. Tarzan, he talked about the uh, diet that he had to follow to have no fat, to have you know just those mm-hmm. those abs where you could count every ripple. I'm assuming yeah. that Tom Sturridge must have gone through um, some milkshakeless months in order to get to that point. But it, you know, it was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. He looked like someone who was yeah um, starved of the things he needed. And he looked oh, absolutely. noble and yet vulnerable. I also really liked the way he moved his body when he finally does emerge yes. from the glass globe. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised to hear he has a background in dance. He moves to my yes. eye like a dancer. Um, mm-hmm. His eyes are really good. He does a lot with a loaded silence, which is oh my kind goodness, of yes. de rigueur for this role. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I thought, you know, as I've said, the camera angles are wonderful. Mm-hmm. We didn't get uh, the POV shot distorted through the glass globe the way we did mm-hmm. in the comic. And that was interesting. Maybe we didn't need it in the comic. Mm-hmm. We don't really get into his head until much later. Yeah. First, we see, I, first, I think we see through mm-hmm. his eyes and then we hear trapped, observe. Threats, patience, mm-hmm. those just 
you know, little one word snippets. Yeah. And here mm -hmm. he has um, more of the burden of exposition in the beginning, which I get. Although, yeah. can I tell a side story? Oh, absolutely. This is this is a, a strange little detail. So I hear that in the original Terminator, the one where mm -hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, first is the, the killer robot. Um, mm -hmm. Originally, people thought that he was the antagonist and the hunky actor who impregnates Linda Hamilton with, you know, mm -hmm. that whole thing, the time yes, travel yes, loop. Yes, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, that he was the hero. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. um, and he wasn't experienced as the hero. People were more in love with the Schwarzenegger character, um, mm -hmm. who then becomes sort of redeemed in later. Yes. And I can't mm -hmm. remember who said it, but someone said it's because of the scene in which the hero goes to the police station and has to mm -hmm. explain, you don't understand. I come from the future where the robots are. He says, you can't give a hero exposition. And mm -hmm. I think this works differently i think this works yeah. differently because he is not beseeching other people to understand him which is not yes. as heroic a stance he is simply commandingly telling us but uh, mm -hmm. i i was thinking that that is a big difference in how we meet the sandman we meet him in a more regal yeah. in command way we absolutely do. And we see him, you know, getting interrupted while trying to, you know, to retrieve the Corinthian, who ends up, of course, playing a bigger role um, and is part of the antagonistic trio in this because he is trying to keep, you know, Dream encased in glass for as long as humanly possible because that means that he can go and enjoy his nightmarish shenanigans around town. Um, so that was, you know, really, really fun. Uh, but yeah, like one of the things that I did miss, you know, from the comics was the... Um, was Dream's line about patience, mm. you know, that I can outlive, I can outweight any of these guys. Um, and I did enjoy that. But I think that here we're deliberately staying out of, we are watching what is happening to him and we are experiencing it almost from a dissociative state, you know, um, which I think is kind of an interesting choice to make for this adaptation because we have been with him. We have been in his POV. We have seen him start. We have seen him in pursuit of a goal, which is taking the Corinthian out and protecting the world, right? Um, and we also saw him make the deliberate choice as Lucienne is saying, hey, this is dangerous for you to go out there in the world. You're not as powerful there as you are here. Um, and him saying, I have to do this. You know, this is a choice that I have to make. So he deliberately makes a choice to make himself vulnerable. During that vulnerability, he gets pulled into this space. And then we just sit with him while he waits and he just waits. So yes, I kind of missed that line, but also I feel like we are feeling the the spirit of that line, even though it's not in the thing we are experiencing that I can outweigh any y'all, you know, like that that is where he's coming from. Um, and and Sturridge, yes, absolutely moves like a dancer. If he's not a dancer, I would be absolutely shocked. Um, I think that his body work is incredible and so um so so powerfully done even his glare his brooding is palpable um which i really really loved um and in other casting i mean the casting in this so far i am absolutely in love with it um opening up with bill patterson like bill patterson as dr john hathaway is the first person that we see and that gives me so much joy i love him i fell in love with him as ned gowan in outlander um and as fleabag's father in fleabag which is amazing if y'all haven't watched fleabag 
Bailey bag. Absolutely go and do that right now. It's amazing. Um, and every time I see him, I just feel this little dance of joy in my heart. And he was only there in the beginning and that's it. And I get that it was a small part, but oh my God, I'm so glad they got Bill Patterson for that. Um, I love Charles Dance. Again, Tywin Lannister of Game of Thrones fame. Um, Really wonderful as Roderick Burgess, the hateable patriarch. Um, Vivian Achiampong as Lucienne. Um, it's hard for me to pull out a favorite casting choice, but this may be it for me. Like, I love her so much. I, I love um, the, you know, that we've got a black woman playing something that had been represented as white male in the original comics. I think that is a beautiful adaptive choice. I love that we have so much diversity in our casting, that we've moved things around and realized that that people can be portrayed in a number of different ways. Uh, so instead of Lucienne, it's Lucienne now, you know, so, uh, so I'm really enjoying that. Plus her, um, her performance is so beautiful there's it's so much expression in her face she is so lovely even after years when we comes back at the end and she has been living in decay she is flawless man she is on point her entire setup she looks beautiful her suit is nary a wrinkle like in the middle of all this destruction um there is something about lucienne that just i i loved the character in the comics um, but this particular portrayal, I have to say, is probably one of my favorite of the adaptive choices, which, by the way, it's hard to choose a favorite. I love a lot of these adaptive choices. I think it's just incredible. I really loved Ethel Cripps. I Oh, she was amazing. I just, yes. you know, she... You know, she's she's fleshed out in a way I found incredibly appealing and interesting mm -hmm. how she manipulates Alex by building him up in yes. terms of power, casually says twat. Um, just, <laughs> just, um, a really fun and interesting character. And of course she will, uh, figure uh, a lot more. Ruthven Sykes mm -hmm. actually has, I think, a bit less of a role. We don't see as much yeah. of Ruthven. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible in the comic that Ruthven Sykes could conceivably be John Dee's father because he yes. runs off mm -hmm. with Ethel here. It seems much likelier that Roderick would be the father. Yes. Uh, but anyway, mm -hmm. I thought, and I'm just going to say this, I, I'm assuming it's a wig because nobody cuts their hair for a role anymore. But I liked uh -huh. her flapper wig. And come at me yes. if you don't. But I know there was a whole, <laughs> there was a whole Twitter person handle called Miranda Hobbs's bad wig. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> and um, anyway, I, I thought this was mm -hmm. a good wig. I always, I've yet yeah. to see a Princess Diana wig that I really have liked. Um, I, yeah. I sometimes mm -hmm. I just think people ought to commit. If you're willing to balloon up or starve yourself for a role, people should get the haircut anyway. But I did think this was a good wig. I'm digressing. Yes. No, I, I loved it. I loved Ethel. Um, and Ethel is, is such a fun character. And I, I really enjoyed her more. I felt like she was um, like more characterized um, in this um, than she was necessarily in the comics. So I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and I love the presence of the raven. You know, um, ravens are powerful symbols in almost every culture um, and have a shape-shifting kind of ideation to them. They are spies. They are protectors. They are troublemakers. They are tricksters. They are omens, good and and bad. Um, many indigenous cultures of the Pacific Northwest saw the raven as the creator of the world and also as a trickster god, so that's really kind of fun. Um, and the raven 
I read this clearly. All y'all, I've been to Wikipedia. The raven is the first species of bird mentioned in the Hebrew Bible of the bird that Noah sent out to find land. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting. Like there is this, this powerful kind of human connection to ravens, both um, for dark and light, that made the choice of the raven um, as Dream's, you know, companion and helper, I think really fun. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting. So in the Hebrew uh, telling, uh, the raven just doesn't come back. So presumably yeah. there was land, but they didn't have the proof because the raven was Sia. Because the raven was out for, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Done with the ark life. So the other interesting thing about ravens is uh, there's a, a tradition that has it that Adam and Eve learned how to bury Abel, the first human who dies, mm -hmm. uh, following ravens who I, I believe put little stones on their on their dead. So other other fun raven things. Uh, so I looked up, I don't know if Jessamy is a magpie, probably not, which is part mm -hmm. of the crow family, or a pied crow, which is a South African mm -hmm. uh, small raven. But mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I looked, I don't think the original Jessamy had white, although I could be mistaken. I'm looking, mm -hmm. you know, I, there may have been some images that had her with white. I'm sure that Neil will mm -hmm. be you know, letting us know if I was wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I just I just tried to imagine <laughs> people having the same reaction that they've had to some of the casting with, you know, mm -hmm. Jessamy should not have a band of white. Clearly, Jessamy was a, you know, such and such raven in, you know, 1992 yes. and therefore should mm -hmm. always be depicted the same way. <laughs> Well, I like it because ravens are clearly, you know, a thing we will be spending time with. And so like having a, a, the ravens be visually distinct from each other, I think is is valuable, especially, you know, in a TV show, helping keep things, uh, keep things straight. Um, but Jessamy, though, is badass. I absolutely love that this raven is evading Roderick Burgess's many, many attempts to murder her. Um, and I love also that she lights the fucking place on fire. She grabs a match, strikes it, drops it on. That is like one of my favorite moments in the first uh, episode. Do not screw with ravens. But okay, here's <laughs> here's the thing I have to say. I, I was wondering, mm -hmm. you know, as she's tap, tap, tapping at the glass, mm -hmm. it looks as though she might actually succeed. But then afterwards... Uh, you know, everyone keeps hitting and, and, and pummeling and knocking their head into the, the globe and it doesn't shatter. So mm -hmm. could Jessamy's beak actually have put a dent in that thing? I, you know, I think considering the fact that this is a, a raven from the dreaming um, that perhaps with some magical powers, perhaps I, what I, here's my headcanon. My headcanon is this, that Jessamy actually knew Morse code and that she was actually doing a spell like with language, right? Mm. Using Morse code. And had she been left to her own and been able to get in there and tap it out, uh, she could have, you know, said the spell, released him from the globe, and they would have gone on their merry way. I believe that Jessamy was up to some shit. Or, or maybe, you know, I'm thinking about how a stone thrown into your mm -hmm. windshield at just the right... <gasps> yeah, Because, you know, you could have an entire deer hit your windshield and it doesn't shatter and one tiny pebble at the wrong angle at it... In the right place with the right force. Absolutely. Okay, I take it back. Mm -hmm. Why, whether by magic or by physics, 
I think it, it could have been that moment, which is not in the comic, mm -hmm. where Jessamy's yeah. blood is all over the glass, and we see... <gasps> oh, God, it's so horrifying. That was... I mean, I don't know if favorite moment is the right word for that moment, mm -hmm. which was a yeah. very painful moment, but it... Um, it resonated in so many different ways. How do you take something away from someone who has already lost everything and make us feel for mm -hmm. them? How can you show that Alex has has finally gone from victim to uh, antagonist? You know, it, it mm -hmm. the moment accomplishes a lot. Oh, it does so much. And it's so incredibly powerful. And still to this to this day, like I've watched this episode a handful of times now. Um, and that moment, every single time I still go, oh, no, even though I know it's coming, even though I've like seen it a number of times now, it still is such an incredibly affecting moment in that story. And I think that's just powerful storytelling. I think it's utilizing the medium, how it's how it's meant to be utilized. Really beautiful. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish and support us today. All right, so... Now we're going to go into our segment called Lucien's Library. Lucien's Library, everybody is, uh, we're talking about themes. We're talking about behind the scenes stuff. There may be light spoilers. Uh, so we're going to go in here. If you have not binged the entire thing yet, just beware. There may be some light spoilers that we're going to try in each episode of Endless to basically just stick to the episode that we're talking about. Um, but let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Alex reading A Handful of Dust. So, of course, uh, there was a, a Sandman ad campaign back in the day I will show you dreams mm -hmm. I think in a handful of dust and it's got that iconic image of of uh, Sandman blowing the sand at mm -hmm. us from his palm but uh, that was also an Evelyn Waugh book now this mm -hmm. looks to me like it's 1926 that was the last time we saw a date I think that mm -hmm. book was actually published in 1934, but maybe that was in the States. Maybe it was published earlier in, in England. Mm -hmm. uh, the book Paul recommends is another Evelyn Waugh book, Vile Bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just sort of loved that little moment about what they were reading. Evelyn Waugh was, yeah. for anyone who doesn't know, a wonderful satirist with uh, a very strong Catholic and ethical sensibility. And Brideshead mm -hmm. Revisited uh, was a big ass deal back in the eighties when it became a miniseries. Absolutely. Um, so that was a pretty cool. I didn't. I didn't pick that up at all. But I think that's a very cool reference. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about comics versus TV and film. What's your your behind the scenes perspective on all of this? Well, you know, I don't know if this is behind the scenes as much mm -hmm. as it's me, comic book reader, and now 
TV viewer. And I and editor and extensive, like you have extensive experience behind the scenes working on comics. And that's got to, you know, kind of inform your, uh, your perspective on this. Well, yes. Although in this sense, mm-hmm. I think I'm um, looking at this as a reader. I think that one of the biggest changes between comic and screen is, I said this before, but there's so much participation on the part of the reader as opposed to the viewer. So in a comic, just like in a novel, you know, the reader is very actively forming the world, collaborating with the writer and the artist. You're adding in all that connective tissues, you know, between the panels, what 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 goes mm-hmm. unsaid and un scene in in the gutters between those panels Mm -hmm. you're giving the line reading there might be a bolded word but you're doing Mm -hmm. that you you know there is no theme music there's you're interpreting the silences so this as with all uh tv and movies it's Mm -hmm. it's quite different you know it's just a different way um that said, there are shows that require more, you know, if you're watching a Bergman movie, there are there are TV shows where you really are not explained. Who is this person? What are they doing? Where did that body come from? And, mm-hmm. you know, and some of them come together and some of them may always leave you with those holes. But this this is kind of an uh, an epic fantasy. And so it doesn't lend itself as much to cryptic Swedish or French yeah, right. storytelling. And so that's a lot of the change. Mm-hmm. The the what um what deepens it for me is mm-hmm. going more deeply into character, getting a fuller sense, say, of Ethel Cripps and how she works. Mm-hmm. I knew her in the comics as a thief. I see her in the show as a con woman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which I'm really, really enjoying. Um, but I think that, yes, with TV shows and film, I think that the the way a reader engages with those is different from how it is with written material. Um, and there is a lot of acting that you do when you're reading, you know, from printed material. There is a lot of um, interpretation that you do. Um, but in TV shows and movies, I find that the, the analysis um, can really extend out from you see what is there and then you take it and you spin it into something else and granted some people some people may not choose to do that and they don't have to um but there's things like like evelyn Waugh, right you know like having that handful of dust there having that have meaning those little easter eggs those things that you can find um i think that there is is real opportunity for readers to um to really be you know like investigating thematic connections and visual connections and what does the color red mean in this particular instance and there is there's a lot to draw out from it. Um, but yeah, the experience of reading is just different when you're going from a viewing experience to a printed, you know, um, textual experience. So um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had some stuff to say also about the passage of time. Well, you know, in in storytelling, I think in many ways, it is the hardest trick, the hardest of the parlor tricks. Yeah. And yes, mm-hmm. I think this episode really does a masterful job of showing us how the decades pass and the mm-hmm. only thing unchanged is Dream in his glass globe. It also reflects mm-hmm. a little bit how I feel, 30 years older than I was <laughs> when I first met him. And so very changed yeah. while he remains, you know, slender and veinless and, and utterly certain of himself in the way that only the very young are. 
Very young and the extremely old, because Dream's no spring chicken at this point. He's been, he's, he's existed for quite some time. Yes, and yet I think that he is thematically in his own life, because we're going to go on a journey yes. with him. He is a lot mm -hmm. more callow than he will be. Yeah. So yes, he is mm -hmm. an ancient, ancient being, but he's not, mm -hmm. um, in terms of his own development, He's still in the youth mm -hmm. of his story. Well, he hasn't been traumatized the way the rest of us have. So seeing him traumatized is part of that growth. Like, what does that trauma actually do to him? And I talked a little bit when we talked about the comics about Dream's story being a trauma narrative, um, which I actually find really, really interesting. And seeing how that plays out through the course of the TV show is going to be really fun. Um, one of the things that I, I really enjoy um, about this story in particular is I have always believed that meaning is the currency of the universe. It's what we go to stories for. It's the absolute base value of narrative. So here in a story that is about the world of stories, everything is about meaning and dream creates those spaces for us to figure out what our lives actually mean. So when you think about meaning being the currency of the universe, because what is it? You know, if it doesn't have meaning, it doesn't like we are not interested. Humans are only interested in meaning when it comes right down to it. That's what we're interested in. Um, that's what keeps us coming back to different stories, to evaluating our dreams, to looking back at our lives and our relationships and our experiences and figuring out what it all means, defining the narrative of what your story is. Um, and so here we have dream in this space that is all about providing that meaning for people. And when he's not there to do it when he's not there to give a space for people to understand the meaning of their dreams, the meaning of their lives, everything falls apart. We cannot exist without that meaning. So for me to like any narrative that addresses that, that, uh, that addresses how important meaning is just to people in general. Um, I find it absolutely enchanting. Um, I love living in that liminal space between two quote unquote real worlds, the one where chaos happens and the one where we transmute that chaos into meaning like alchemists. It's just amazing. Um, I love all all of that. And I think that that to me is probably the thing about Sandman. I'm only realizing now as we're going through the TV show that this is the core of the Sandman universe that has so drawn me in and so enchanted me. Yeah, I, I feel that. And I, it's funny as you were talking and I realized as you were talking about meaning, it occurred to me that when Roderick asks him, can you give me my son? Can you bring my son back to life? Dream doesn't answer him. But of course, mm -hmm. we know the answer. I can manipulate you into believing that I have done this. And he doesn't. Yeah. So he, he wouldn't mm -hmm. have had the power to grant the wish, but he would have had the power yeah. to offer either by fooling Roderick or by saying, I can give you a dream of your son that will be as good as the real thing. He's, yeah. um, so it, in his refusal to respond, it, it is also freighted with a lot of meaning about the compromises he won't make. Yes, the things that he's not willing to do, you know. Um, and especially because, you know, here we have Dream with that power you know, to create that meaning for him and to get out and to do it for himself. And yet he doesn't. Um, and him making that choice. I mean, when it comes right down to it, fiction is telling truth through lies. 
you know. Um, but dream is so because all of the lies that are in the dream, all of the fantasy, all of the stuff that is not quote unquote real um, is more real because of what it means. And so he can't lie. You know, he can't lie because his job is to use fiction to tell the truth. And if it's not the truth, it, he can't, it doesn't serve who he is. He would alter who he was. And we've seen, you know, in, in, you know, in later days in this story, we're going to see what happens when an endless is fundamentally altered uh, by their experience of interacting with the human world that they then serve. Um, so I find that really, really interesting. The other thing that I absolutely love about this and that I pulled out again, you know, during this, this watch is this idea of here we are in the middle of a tower story. Um, in the tarot, the tower card is probably my favorite. It is incredibly meaningful to me because I have been towered in my life many, many times. Um, but it represents those moments in life where everything falls apart and you have to start from scratch. You have to start over and rebuild. Um, and no one ever chooses to be towered. The whole purpose of being towered is that you did not choose this, but the way in which you were living your life, the way in which you were building the tower of your existence was faulty. The architecture was bad and this was always going to fall down. Um, and then when it finally does, it creates this opportunity for deep personal growth. Um, and season one of Sandman, as I've talked about Sandman being a, a you know trauma narrative, it is also a tower story. Um, Dream is removed from his seat of power. Um, everything is taken from him. And in order for him to rebuild, he has to reclaim what is his. Um, and the meaning in a story comes from the change between the start and the end. Uh, when we get there, we'll talk about the meaning behind how Dream changes throughout the course of this entire season, because I think that that is really where we get to the meaning of his particular narrative. Um, but it is interesting to note that theme of forgiveness. It is because Dream cannot forgive Alex for murdering his raven that he stays in the cage for so long. Um, his weakness, lack of forgiveness, combined with Alex's weakness, which is cowardice, makes a bad situation worse. Um, and so I love that complete towering as being the, the, the start of the story. And then we go into the dreaming at the end when he returns and it is this moment that should be jubilant and everything is falling apart and we literally see the tower on his castle crumbling down and I'm like okay somebody had to know I mean again a lot of these symbols the reason they're in the tarot uh, the reason that we see these symbols in dreams and everything is because they have universal human meaning so it is very possible that nobody involved in this had any intention of it being a towering at all but I found that particular moment to be so incredibly powerful so beautiful and absolutely what I want from a tower narrative I love that we have these different kinds of narratives going too that there is mm -hmm. we begin in an Evelyn Waugh kind of world of the arist aristocracy who always getting up to some occult shenanigans and then we're going to go into this dream world which has a different flavor and we talked at the mm -hmm. beginning uh, about how this is uh, a, a saga with a lot of tonal shifts and it does mm -hmm. go back and forth between horror and fantasy and I think we we get that I think there is more consistency more evenness uh, in in the show than in the comics, but I do think we definitely do get that. You know, we get the Evelyn Waugh occult world, and we get the fantasy world, mm -hmm. and I love that balance. 
Yeah, I think it's a really lovely kind of genre fusion that we have going there. And we sort of will will shift in and out from one to the other, um, which I think is also thematically completely on point because that's how dreams work, right? You know, you'll you'll be in this completely boring thing and the next thing you know, you're being chased by a monster and it's a horror story all of a sudden, you know. Um, all right. So, Elisa, for episode one of The Sandman, um, what is your favorite part? My favorite part that just got me very viscerally is where young Alex is sort of comfortingly taking uh, John Hathaway by the hand, you know, sort of comforting him as, as he yeah. goes through this scary occult house. And you realize that this old man is being corrupted and this innocent mm-hmm. child uh, who has not yet fully been corrupted by the surroundings is is sort of comforting him mm-hmm. and acting as a guide. And it it is not a moment that's in the comic in that way. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so beautifully done. What about you? What 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 stood out for you? Oh, man. I mean, there's so much in this that it was really difficult for me to choose a favorite moment. But I think it is that ending. I think it's when Dream returns to the dreaming after all of this time. He's had victory. He's finally been freed. And he goes back home. And he finds that tower crumbling. He finds his castle crumbling. People have left, right? But Lucien is there faithful until the last light Lucienne will be. Um, And so there was something about that bittersweet moment of everything is crumbling to the ground, but here is Lucienne ever faithful, ever ready to serve, always there to, you know, to bring the dreaming about and to, to live in that space and in the sacredness of the job that she does, which is so important. And I, I love, we'll find out more about her job, of course, but I, I mm-hmm. realize that this is a shift from the comics that I think adds something to the Lucien Morpheus relationship. Mm-hmm. In the comic, yeah. he's found uh, by Gregory the Gargoyle and nurtured mm-hmm back uh, by Cain and Abel. And so you don't get the same primacy of the Mm Lucienne relationship. I think that that is a change that works uh, really, really well. I'm not saying it works better than the comic, but uh, there is something... I feel that this Lucienne is really defined as a person. And Mm -hmm. I maybe the places where I can respond the most fully are where we depart so much from the comic that I just leave it behind and can appreciate this different tale. And I think as we go forward where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, I guess it's like with game of Thrones where I hadn't read all the books, but you know, you have to allow yourself to let go of that tether and say, okay, I'm going on this journey. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. You have to appreciate the fact that you can have both of those stories at the same time and love them both, um, but appreciate the different things that they do. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. From now on, Jack, you and I are going to have to make our own dreams come true. We'll be back next time with Imperfect Hosts, episode two of Netflix, The Sandman, season one. Until then, you're never getting out of there. Never. Never.